WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Best little radio station on planet Earth. And this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with what looks like the end of the 12-year rule of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu as a new government of change is forming, which is an unlikely coalition of religious nationalists and secular parties, along with an Islamist party of Arab Israelis. Joining us to discuss this frail coalition government and how long it might last is Dr. Guy Ziv, an associate professor at American University School of International Service and the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. With Netanyahu doing everything he can to sabotage this new coalition that will have the right-winger Naftali Bennett as Prime Minister until 2023, then switch to the centrist Yair Lapid as PM for the following two years, there is some doubt this government will last long. And should another war with the Palestinians erupt, the small four-seat Islamic Ram Party could defect from the coalition and, assuming Netanyahu is not in jail, he could come back into power. Then we'll speak with Princeton presidential historian Julian Zelizer about his article at CNN, States Cannot Be Trusted to Protect the Right to Vote. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and author of Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, he joins us to discuss the challenge Biden faces to focus on his ambitious gender and get it passed while the very foundation of American democracy is under attack by Republicans and has to be addressed, otherwise the GOP will win by cheating in 2022 and the Democrats will lose both the House and the Senate. Then finally, with Vice President Harris poised to go on her first trip abroad to Mexico and Guatemala, we will speak with Joe Marie Burt, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America, who is a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. We will discuss how immigration dominates the political agenda while the Vice President's focus is on improving conditions in the Northern Triangle countries so that Central Americans are not compelled to leave their homes and risk their lives heading for the U.S. border. And joining us now is Dr. Guy Ziv, who's an associate professor at American University School of International Service and the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Perez and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Guy Ziv. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this very, very frail coalition that's been put together in Israel People from polar opposites have joined in a coalition. It's obviously it's the anti-Netanyahu coalition. That's probably the glue that's holding it together. But he's already trying to peel people off, and uh, it's hanging by a thread. So, I guess two questions: one, are they going to form a new government, the government of change, as they call it? And two, how long will it last? So nothing is certain until the swearing in of the new government. And that's going to take place most likely on June 14th and not before then. So it's not entirely inconceivable that this government is going to fall short of the uh, 61 seat majority 
And I can tell you that Netanyahu, uh, for his, you know, on his end, will certainly do his utmost to try to derail uh, this uh, coalition from being sworn in. Uh, I, I still think that uh, there is a, a higher likelihood that it will be sworn in, but it's 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 uh, it's too early for uh, opponents of Netanyahu to celebrate. Um, so I, I think it's significant because you know we're talking about over twelve years consecutive years of power for Netanyahu, and now he seems to be heading to the opposition. And this new government is a very eclectic coalition. I don't know if there's ever been such a uh, diversified, uh, a diverse range of parties from uh, your f- kind of far right nationalist parties to centrist parties, leftists, and for the first time, an Arab party. And I think what really unites them all is the desire to oust Netanyahu, save Israel from uh, yet another election, from a fifth election in two and a half years, and uh, address the day-to-day concerns of the average Israeli. And uh, the new prime minister, if in fact this coalition can be cobbled together, Yiftali Bennett is considered to be further to the right than Netanyahu, and he just received, or his party just received, 6.2% of the vote, and he's joined in coalition with the largest party of the coalition, which is, yes, Atid, they won 17 parliamentary seats and their leader, of course, is a, the former TV host, right? Yale Lapid. Yeah, he was a, uh, an anchorman, uh, a popular anchorman for many years. That's correct. Right. So they're kind of polar opposites, aren't they? Naftali Bennett being a religious nationalist and Yale Lapid being probably one of the most secular of all politicians. Didn't he essentially, isn't, uh, yes... Atid, didn't it really form as a kind of secular block? It did, it did, and uh, I would say he has competition in that regard from Avigdor Lieberman, who is a uh, a right-wing nationalist, but a fiercely secular one, who has been even more antagonistic towards the uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, community than Lapid ever was. Uh, but I think Lapid is really uh, the star here. Uh, so many people are focusing on Bennett, and, and rightly so, because he's going to presumably be the next prime minister. But it's really like you're, you're Lapid, uh, the leader of the opposition, without whom there would be no alternative government. So for the last several years, he's really kept his eye on the ball, the goal being to send Netanyahu packing. And he's placed uh, principle over opportunism. He's worked patiently and vigorously to unite the center-left bloc, he has put his own ego aside. Um, who else would forgo the premiership? I mean, that's very, very unusual, yet he has done so. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, he deserves a lion's share of credit for making history last night. And the small Arab-Israeli party, Ram, it's got, what, four seats? And it's an Islamist party. And that is, of course, in itself unusual. But if there's another flare-up or a war like we just had with Gaza, they would walk, wouldn't they? I think that's right. I don't know if they would walk, but it would be very, very contentious. The, uh, I, I can see the debates within the coalition are happening right now, and it's certainly not an unlikely scenario, right, that there will be some sort of flare-up either in Gaza or possibly in the West Bank. And, uh, and the question is, how are they going to handle it? So, you know, one thing's for sure, this government is not intended to make uh, dramatic moves with respect to the Palestinians. So regardless of Naftali Bennett's uh, nationalistic agenda, 
we're not going to see his annexation plans uh, go through. That's not going to happen. Uh, and nor are we going to see any kind of developments in the peace process with the Palestinians. I don't think that's going to happen either. So uh, what we are going to see uh, is, you know, an attempt to uh, focus on the consensus issues in Israeli society. There hasn't been a budget passed in the last two and a half, three years. The infrastructure uh, has been uh, deteriorating. Uh, healthcare, transportation, the economy. I mean, these are kind of bread and butter issues that affect the day-to-day -day lives of most Israelis, right, left or center. And I think that, that those are the kinds of issues that we're going to see this government trying to tackle. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Guy Zib, who's an associate professor at American University School of International Service and the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. And you mentioned how pragmatic yeah, Lapid is, and of course it's even more <laughs> glaring in as much as the plan with Naftali Bennett being Prime Minister. He's supposed to stay on as Prime Minister and serve until 2023. And then, yeah, Lapid is supposed to take over for the remaining two years of that coalition's term. And of course, it's pretty ambitious to think they're going to last that long, as you pointed out earlier. So that in itself is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? It is. And he made it, uh, Bennett made an interesting statement today saying that unlike uh, Netanyahu, he does not uh, intend to uh, make promises that he doesn't intend to keep. He does not intend to do what Netanyahu did with respect to Benny Gantz, the defense minister and the, um, the, the man who was supposed to replace Netanyahu in their rotation agreement, which Netanyahu never intended to carry out. And uh, Bennett contrasted himself with Netanyahu. Uh, and I think that that is uh, a pretty remarkable statement, whether it's true, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, time will tell. Uh, and I doubt, as you pointed out, I doubt that uh, this government will really last its full term. But there seems to be goodwill. There seems to be goodwill. And that's more than I can say for uh, the outgoing government. Yeah, well, he's, uh, Netanyahu is obviously really incensed and he's branding them as a dangerous left wing government. <laughs> which is, at the very least, hyperbole, right? Look, Netanyahu, in uh, recent years especially, has uh, shown this, this disturbing willingness to cross all red lines. Uh, he has, uh, because of his legal troubles, uh, he has uh, tried to do everything in power to stay in power and to obtain immunity from prosecution at, at any cost. And so he has you know, uh, made all sorts of uh, promises, uh, wild promises to various politicians from across the political spectrums, promises that he's never had any intention of keeping. But more importantly, he has really torn apart the society. He's pitted Israelis against one another. He has incited against the uh, Arab-Israeli community. He's incited against the left. He has incited against uh, the various gatekeepers of Israeli democracy, such as the media and the courts and his own handpicked attorney general and basically anyone who dared challenge him. Some Israelis are predicting an, uh, an Israeli version of a January 6th. So uh, he has really become a, a serious danger to Israel's future as a democracy. Well, when you say there's a possibility of a January the 6th, you know, with the right-wing mob storming, in this case it would be the Knesset, already right-wing mobs have been 
outside of Naftali Bennett's house, right, threatening him. And he's had to get bodyguards from, from internal security. Not just Naftali Bennett, but Naftali Bennett's colleagues, and not just Naftali Bennett and his colleagues and his party, but other parties. Uh, last night, or either a night or two ago, uh, Tamara Zandberg, who is a uh, left-wing Knesset member representing the Merits Party, was threatened. Her baby was; she has a baby. Her uh, baby was threatened. The baby's life was threatened, and uh, she and her partner and the baby had to um, leave their house uh, for the night. So uh, Israel is becoming a dangerous place for anyone who disagrees with uh, Netanyahu, and uh, that's something that Netanyahu has never really sought to. Uh, to put to rest. I mean, he has been really inciting uh, against uh, anyone who disagrees with him. And uh, the former Shin Bet officials have said that the atmosphere in Israel today is very reminiscent of the atmosphere they recall in the mid 90s when uh, there were demonstrations against the late Yitzhak Rabin. Well, you mentioned uh, Rabin, his. Widow Leah has always blamed Netanyahu for her husband's death, and he was inciting violence at that point. That was a while back. That's right. And these allegations go uh, go back to the 90s, to the uh, early to mid-90s. And Netanyahu, of course, denies it, and his supporters deny it. But uh, the fact is that he was at these demonstrations where there was uh, an effigy of Rabin. There were uh, posters that were very incendiary. Uh, calls that were very easy to hear. And, and in fact, some of uh, Netanyahu's own colleagues at the time, uh, Likud party colleagues, left the scene of this demonstration because they were uncomfortable uh, with that atmosphere. And Netanyahu, of course, stayed and remained there, but doesn't seem to have learned any lessons other than incitement pays off. Now, what's the analysis going on in Israeli press about during the recent war with Hamas, there was a lot of speculation that Netanyahu let this thing get out of control uh, because it was pretty clear. All you had to do was look at a calendar, a Jewish calendar and a Muslim calendar side by side, and you knew that the Jerusalem Day March was going to clash with the end of Ramadan. And you, we know there was an explosion at the Third Holiest Shrine with Israeli border police firing stun grenades inside Al-Aqsa, etc., a lot of people thought that he brought this war on as a way to distract from his own problems, particularly the possibility of going to jail. The more, I guess, tempered remark would be that he just was negligent. So what's the analysis now? Is, is this, in other words, people thought, some analysts thought that the recent war would would boost his ratings. Others thought that once the dust had settled, there'd be some blowback. So where do you come down, Guy? Well, I, more on the latter. I don't think this was something that he had planned or uh, intended uh, uh, intended to happen. Um, what's interesting is you're describing events that just happened several weeks ago, maybe uh, a month ago at most, yet it's uh, ancient history uh, today, uh, given the, the political developments, given the fact that uh, you, know, you have this uh, picture that's been um, going viral of Abbas, Mansour Abbas, the head of this Ra'am, the Islamist Ra'am party, who is sitting with Lapid and Naftali Bennett, shaking hands and signing a coalition agreement. They're going to be part of this government. And so I think people are looking uh, towards the future and, uh, and hoping that, uh, that there's not going to be more flare-ups 
uh, as there was over the Temple Mount. Of course, there will be at some point. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, this the issue of Jerusalem is not going to be resolved anytime soon. I, I think they know that. The question is whether they can lower the temperature by working together and showing that it's possible to coexist, showing that it's possible not just to coexist, but to have the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, work together with uh, government officials from across the political spectrum and maybe also help to improve, uh, showing an, a real improvement in the quality of their lives in Israel. I think that will do a lot to uh, lower the tensions in Jerusalem. And you mentioned Mansu Abbas, the leader of the Islamic uh, Ram Party, because he was, I suppose, by definition, he's a religious conservative. So to that extent, he has something in common with Naftali Bennett. But my understanding that what's motivating him is to get funds for the communities of Israeli Arabs and Israeli Palestinians, which have been underfunded. And what came out, of course, during the, this recent war with Hamas was that this violence going on, uh, communal violence between right-wing Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis. And my understanding is that that one of the things that's motivating Abbas is to get money for these communities to, to have basic security, that they have been prey to Arab gangsters, etc., and were obviously recently prey to Jewish right-wing vigilantes. There's been no question that there's been uh, discrimination against uh, Arab Israelis, uh, that there has been neglect um, that they are not receiving the same level of social services, that uh, crime in the Arab community in Israel is high and has been neglected and pretty much ignored uh, by the Israeli police and uh, underfunded across the board. And so he is changing, Abbas is changing the paradigm because up until now, uh, the paradigm was you advocate from outside the coalition. And uh, if you're going to support the government, you support the government from outside the, outside the coalition, from the benches of the opposition. What Abbas said is, I'm actually going to work with the Israeli government, whether it's the Netanyahu government or his replacement. We want to make the only way that we're going to see a change in our situation is if we are part of the decision making process. And that is new. And, and I would say refreshing. Netanyahu, in many ways, himself paved the road for this new development because it was Netanyahu who essentially reached out to Abbas and said, will you work with me? Of course, Netanyahu was unable to form his coalition. And so now uh, Lapid and Bennett uh, were willing to pick up from where Netanyahu left off and iron out this deal with Abbas. So just in closing, uh, Dr. Gaziev, it's looks like it's the end of the 12-year reign of Netanyahu, but you can't you can't count your chickens <laughs> until they're hatched. This is a frail coalition. But I get the impression from you that if it does work, it could be kind of hopeful change in Israel. It can be a, a very hopeful change. We'll see how long this government lasts. We'll see what happens with Netanyahu and, and kind of what Likud, what Netanyahu's party does. I think it's also going to reduce tensions with the new Biden administration over issues like Iran. I mean, Netanyahu did not hide his uh, determination to thwart the uh, administration's plan for re-entering the nuclear deal. 
And I don't think that this new government, which really represents views from across the spectrum on this issue as on other issues, is going to want to pick a fight with the Biden administration. And so I think we're going to see uh, relative calm, uh, less tensions and um, and an attempt to uh, unify uh, the disparate elements of the Israeli uh, society um, in, in a way that uh, is that contrasts starkly with the divisiveness we've seen during the Netanyahu era. And of course, the defense, Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, is coming to Washington next week, and he's apparently going to ask for a billion extra dollars to replenish the Iron Dome system. So do you expect anything, uh, just in the last minute, any resistance to that on Capitol I Hill? I believe he's here already. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe he's here already. Uh, no, I expect the I, I expect the uh, defense cooperation to continue. I don't think that that is going to change, uh, regardless of who forms the next government. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Geyser. It's been my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Guy Zib, who's an associate professor at American University School of International Service and the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at how Biden can remain focused on his ambitious agenda and get it passed at the same time, deal with the Republican attack on the very foundation of American democracy. <music> I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include The Fierce Urgency of Now, Linda Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst. And his latest book is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And he has an article at CNN, States Cannot Be Trusted to Protect the Right to Vote. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julian Zelizer. Thanks for having me. So, Julian, as a presidential historian, has there ever been a situation where a president like Joe Biden is faced with this dual problem? On the one hand, the fate of his presidency and the fate of the Democratic Party rests on whether something's going to be done to stop the Republican Party under now controlled by Donald Trump, who have decided quite openly and quite brazenly that their future lies in cheating as opposed to competing. So that is a monumental problem, obviously. But on the other hand, Biden is also trying to deliver to the American people so that he can build a better majority for the Democrats in the upcoming 2022 midterms where normally 
the party that controls the White House loses seats, which, of course, the Democrats can't afford. So how is he going to navigate this? Well, it's difficult. It's, it's almost the reverse of the 60s when Lyndon Johnson was faced with pressure for civil rights. But, but the risk of moving forward with it, at least in his mind, was that it would make the party politically weaker because you'd have a backlash against the party from the South. Whereas now, President Biden is wrestling with what to do, uh, either to try to overcome the filibuster or how do you pressure the two uh, senators who don't want to go along with this election reform bill. But if he doesn't do it, the risks are in many ways greater uh, than the risks of uh, going forward with this. He is dealing with efforts to restrict votes that the Democratic Party, frankly, will need uh, not only in 2022, but in the coming years. And this will be uh, a little bit of a profile of, of his courage of uh, how much pressure is he willing to bring to bear on Senators Manchin and Cinema, and is he willing just to circumvent Republicans in the Senate altogether? But in terms of making this a central issue for the American people, I don't think a lot of people in this country know or care about what a filibuster is. So... How does it become clear to the American people that their very democracy is under attack? Well, the discussion can't be about the filibuster. The discussion has to be about the vote. And the more that he can do to highlight uh, and, and to do it in dramatic ways, the sorts of restrictions that we're seeing uh, in different states from Georgia to Florida uh, and, and unsuccessfully so far in Texas, that's how you win the debate. You show Americans what's going on. You remind them of January 6th. You, you paint a picture not about a Senate process, the filibuster, but about what's at risk if a vote is not had on this. And that's the only path forward. But, but as you're saying, the filibuster is a powerful weapon because Americans don't see it. They don't understand it. But it's effective at stopping uh, a vote from happening. But it's also essentially, at least in its current form, it's a, it's, it was just concocted in, I think, about 2007 by Mitch McConnell, where you basically phone it in. Uh, there's no skin in the game. It's not in the Constitution. It's always, always been used by Southern Democrats. I mean, they filibustered against civil rights, and they also filibustered against the um, anti-lynching bill, for God's sake, you know? So and that's exactly right. I mean, if you're talking about the filibuster, again, the filibuster is not part of the Constitution. It's not uh, a tradition that has to be part. It's, it's a rule that uh, has been adopted over time, uh, but it could be jettisoned. It has been actually jettisoned. We don't use it anymore for Supreme Court nominees, for federal nominees, and it's uh, exempted uh, when the budget is being uh, debated. This is what we call budget reconciliation, you can't filibuster. And the principal use of this mechanism was as a tool to stop civil rights between the 1920s and the 1970s. And it wasn't a mechanism of deliberation. It was always a mechanism of obstruction. And now we're seeing it taken to new levels where basically we expect 60 votes on any bill, which is uh, nothing like what the founders had in mind. So when Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema piously say that this is about preserving American democracy and preserving our government, 
What are they talking about then? Well, it's a, just standard rhetoric from um, supporters of this process. And the idea is that somehow if you slow down the Senate, uh, if you force negotiation because the minority party has this tool, that ultimately you have better outcomes. But that just doesn't square with what the history has been. Uh, and, and the more we use the filibuster, which is the last few decades, the more gridlock we actually have. So they're wrong. Uh, it's not a correct argument. It's simply a form of rhetoric uh, to protect minority power in the Senate. So given that they're wrong, how do you get them to recognize that they're wrong? Well, it's going to be hard. Uh, it's not incorrect that uh, Senator Manchin, for example, is a Democrat in a pretty conservative state. And so part of this is his posturing. Um, but obviously, presidential power uh, can be pretty significant. And the way to do it is to put pressure on both of those senators, first at the grassroots level, really mobilizing Democrats in the state, not outside of the state. Uh, and then other, you know, tools. If, if Senator Manchin is going to want favors or want the ear of, um, you know, President Biden, there can be an exchange that then you have to allow a bill like this to come up for a vote because it's pretty essential to our democracy. It's not easy to do this, but it has to be a little heavy handed. Well, I imagine if the president is sitting down with Joe Manchin in the Oval Office, he's going to say, Joe, I'm the goddamn president, not you. I mean, isn't it extraordinary that these two senators, the power they wield? Well, that is how the Senate works. Um, and when you have a 50-person you know, majority, that's the, the biggest problem. Uh, you know, there's just no wiggle room for the administration. Uh, the risk that those two senators would say uh, is uh, very real is that if you put too much pressure on them to do something that won't sit well with their constituents, Senator McConnell will be the majority leader before you know it. Uh, and so that's the kind of um, strategy they will use. And, and Biden basically has to make a convincing case through carrot or stick about why actually helping the party move this legislation would be beneficial for everyone. But could Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema get reelected in West Virginia and Arizona as Republicans? Oh, that's a good that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know. My guess is at this point, no, um, and because uh, obviously uh, Republicans don't have a lot of love for, for any Democrats. So um, that's not an option. I think they I think they have uh, at their disposal. So then that would indicate that that Biden's got something to work with. Yeah, I mean, they might also think, though, if they continue to position themselves uh, as being oppositional to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is how they'll frame it, although I don't think that's what this is about, uh, it actually just enhances their standing with more moderate Democrats in their state as opposed to Republicans. But I think the basic point you're saying is right. Uh, Mansion uh, and cinema depend not only on the voters of West Virginia um, and Arizona, but they also depend on the Democratic Party and its overall health. And uh, Biden has to make that very clear. So your article 
at CNN, states cannot be trusted to protect the right to vote. Julian Zelazar mentions, of course, the 1965 Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court took out Section 5 in a majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts. And I don't know whether Roberts has had second thoughts. I mean, at the time he said, oh, we're over it, you know, we've moved on, we're no longer, you know, we're sort of post-racial. Well, <laughs> look what's happened since. I mean, they're immediately that they stripped out Section 5 in a Shelby v. Holder, the southern states moved to suppress the vote. And now it's just got out of hand to the point where it's just disgraceful what's going on. Also, the Supreme Court is now looking at the possibility of stripping out Section 2 of the Civil Rights Act as well, are they not? Yeah, uh, and and I think the results are pretty clear. There's not many uh, Supreme Court decisions where you see the effect, not years later, but months later. Uh, the premise of the Voting Rights Act of 65 was that states could not be trusted to protect the right to vote and that the history of this country um, just seeped in, in racism and backlash politics showed that a lot of states will suppress the vote. And as soon as the court made the decision um, with Section 5, instantly you saw it was either 14 or 15 states within a year had put into place voting restrictions. We've seen an acceleration of that. President Trump, the former president, basically gave his imprimatur to this by talking about voting fraud and supporting these kinds of measures. And now there's legal challenges to other parts of an already fragile act like Section 2. So uh, all of this should be a lesson that we need uh, not only to preserve the Voting Rights Act, but to strengthen it and to, in some ways, expand what it does or democracy is at risk. So do you think now that Chief Justice Roberts is the swing vote on this even more conservative court, do you think he's had some kind of second thoughts? I don't know. I mean, uh, the thing about uh, Justice Roberts is he has actually been part of a Republican coalition that since the 1980s has been pushing to weaken the Voting Rights Act and has often been supportive of allowing some of these kinds of measures to take place. So I'm not persuaded, frankly, that he's having many second thoughts. I'm sure he wasn't happy with the insurrection of January 6th. But I don't really know where he stands on uh, what he thinks as he sees these states do exactly what he said wasn't happening anymore uh, in that 2013 decision. Well, but what, without getting into amateur psychiatrics, how can you justify what's going on as a, an American who believes in democracy? A democracy fundamentally, isn't it? Elections are about a level playing field. You don't enter a race that's clearly rigged and you're not supposed to cheat. And if you cheated in a NFL game or a Super Bowl, can you imagine what would happen if the ref ruled and made one team win that they clearly lost in a play that everybody saw on television? There'd be, a you know, 100,000 plus people rioting in the stadium. So how do you reconcile that, the idea that there's this brazen cheating going on now with the GOP and whether there's a kind of moral standard still in this country that it's not right to cheat and you're supposed to operate on a level playing field and the race goes to the swiftest, not the dirtiest. 
I, look, I think all the questions are fair, but I think uh, one of the effects of, of the former president, uh, which some dismissed at the time or some weren't exactly sure how this would play out, was from the time he was elected, he was talking about voter fraud. And he, uh, even after winning and then after losing in 2020, uh, made this argument about pervasive voting fraud, which no one has found evidence of. Um, but rhetorically, I think he gave that strength. And uh, all of the measures you're talking about are based on the idea that there's this fraud taking place, that people are going to vote all over the place with fraudulent identities, or they're taking advantage of early voting and absentee voting. And I think that's how this then is justified. If you accept that argument, and I don't know if Justice Roberts does, then you can justify uh, the measures. The problem is the facts aren't correct. Um, but I think that's the logic that supporters use. Well, just in closing, how do you demolish that scaffolding of lies? Very difficult. Uh, we've seen that there is now an entire ecosystem to continue promoting uh, disinformation. And this is an example of where that disinformation is so debilitating in how our basic politics work. So uh, you need more of, of people like Stacey Abrams who make voting central to their agenda and are out there doing grassroots and organizational work to fight against these measures and take on these efforts to disenfranchise Americans. But should Biden himself take it on? We started out talking about how Biden has a dilemma on the one hand to make the defense of democracy a central issue, but on the other hand, to deliver to the American people so that he and the Democrats get reelected. I think that he um, has to take this on. I think the moral argument is too great, uh, especially given how large uh, numbers of voters were essential to uh, his victory. Um, there's a moral clarity in protecting the right to vote that he should be able to see and that should strengthen his resolve. And then there's just the practical issue. This hurts Democrats. And as the leader of the party, he accepts these kinds of restrictions uh, and lets them happen. He's going to undermine his party. And my guess is if this continues, uh, regardless of mansion and cinema, Democrats will find themselves in the minority anyway. And he might very well be on a path to a one-term presidency. So on both fronts, I think uh, it's pretty clear he should take this on. Well, Julian Zelizer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. His recent books include The Fierce Urgency of Now, Linda Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst. And his latest book is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And he has an article at CNN, States Cannot Be Trusted to Protect the Right to Vote. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Vice President Harris's upcoming trip to Mexico and Guatemala and how immigration dominates the political agenda while the Vice President's focus is on improving conditions in the Northern, in the Northern Triangle countries so that Central Americans are not compelled to leave their homes and risk their lives heading for the U.S. border. Staggering account of the seven on the mound, which I don't pretend to understand at all. The 
Porque está viejo y cansado Pero no se dan de cuenta Que un corazón amarrado Cuando le sueltan las riendas Es caballo desbocado Y si una potra la sana Caballo viejo se encuentra El pecho se le desgrana Y no le hace caso a falseta Y no le obedece a freno Ni lo paran falsas riendas Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Joe Marie Burt, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights and transitional justice in Latin America. A research consultant for the Open Society Justice Initiative, she writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for International Justice Monitor, and is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Marie Burt. Hi, and it's very nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And Vice President Harris has been given a very difficult... Actually, she's been given two incredibly difficult tasks by President Biden. One is to deal with the root cause of immigration to the southern border by trying to make life more livable in the countries in the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras, and of course dealing with voting rights under this assault from the Republicans with voter suppression and basically a decision on the part of the GOP that they'd rather cheat than compete. So this is a, a big task for somebody that clearly has political ambitions and being vice president might well be a presidential contender, yet she's got a situation with the southern border that the Republicans love to demagogue on. So how do you see this task ahead of her? Because in effect, she can't fail, can she? Oh, she, she ha I think you're right that she does have a very challenging portfolio in front of her. Um, and... You know, unfortunately, the GOP really did, I don't know, um, frame the whole discussion about what's going on in Central America as about migration. When what we really needed to, we really need to be doing in Central America is looking at what is pushing people to leave those countries, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, primarily. Um, I think that the the GOP uh, narrative, I mean, particularly the Trumpian narrative, which is now, I guess, the equivalent of the GOP narrative, is that, you know, migrants are the, at the root of all evil in the United States. And that's just a ludicrous position to take. And I think what I'd like to see the Democrats do and maybe Kamala Harris lead is to reframe our discussion. Um, we are a country of immigrants. We benefit immensely from the people who come to this country who work in so many industries um, and so forth. Um, and there are so many people fleeing insecurity, poverty, corruption in Central America. 
And I think we can't forget that the United States has played a sort of historic, critical role in the situation that we see in Central America today. So I think we need to sort of open up that conversation and stop you know, allowing it to be hijacked by the GOP agenda, which is migration equals bad. And let's talk about what we benefit from migration and, and also how we contribute to it. Well, indeed, one of the, the worst problems, of course, is drug trafficking. And the leaders of Honduras, particularly Tony Hernandez, the brother of the president, who's now given a life sentence in the United States for importing hundreds of tons of cocaine, I repeat, hundreds of tons of cocaine into the United States. Of course, if we weren't such huge consumers of illegal drugs, the whole problem would go away, but that's obviously asking for too much. But in terms of the agenda or the itinerary for Vice President Kamala Harris, she arrives in Guatemala on Sunday, has meetings with President Chimate, and then on Monday, well, actually on Sunday night, she goes to Mexico, but has meetings all day Monday and Tuesday in Mexico with uh, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. She's not going to El Salvador or Honduras, and I think that's pretty clear, isn't it, that those two leaders are so damn corrupt that she just couldn't do it? What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that is why she's not going to Honduras. I mean, uh, the president, as you said, is uh, 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 unindicted co-conspirator number one in the case involving his brother and the massive quantity of, of cocaine trafficking that you mentioned earlier. Um, so aside from the fact that the U.S. supported him for many years or turned a blind eye to him for many years, um, I think that it's good that we're not dealing with him at this point. And as for El Salvador, after um, the uh, sacking of the constitutional court and the attorney general by President Bukele, well, by the Congress, which is er virtually controlled now by President Bukele, um, I think it's also sending a signal to him that, you know, we're, we're disappointed in his you know, very heavy-handed sort of authoritarian uh, moves um, and the sort of the obliteration of democratic checks and balances in El Salvador. And his sort of uh, also very, um, he's had a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> uh, a bellicose attitude towards some U.S. senators uh, who have been pushing for, you know, democratic reforms and anti-corruption reforms in El Salvador. So I think that's also the right move. Um, however, you know, this idea that somehow uh, Alejandro Yamate, the president of Guatemala, is like our man, he's the guy in Central America that we can deal with, is extremely short-sighted. I mean, the, the um, Congress, which is controlled by, you know, parties connected to the president um, or allied to the president, um, just prevented the um, sort of one of the best known, most prestigious uh, magistrates of the Constitutional Court from taking her seat. And they uh, so they removed honest, independent magistrates and they allowed in um, magistrates connected to organized crime, drug trafficking and other unsavory acts. Among other things, right? Uh, I think actually Yamate is sort of the second phase of a process that we've seen in Guatemala under the previous government led by Jimmy Morales in which uh, corrupt 
pro-impunity actors have come together to A, remove the International Criminal Court against um, impunity, the CCIG, which was funded you know, by the United States along with um, some European governments and the United Nations to route out corruption and impunity in Guatemala. Uh, Jimmy Morales made sure to get rid of that. And now sort of like the one-two sucker punch, right? Jimmy Morales did, you know, part of the of the battle. And now Yamate is wrapping it up by exercising now complete control over all three branches of government, reinstating a system with zero checks and balances in which there's a facade of democracy. There's a president, there's a Congress, there's the there's a judiciary, but they're all controlled by the same band of corrupt individuals. And so, in my view, uh, Yamate in Guatemala is no better than Bukele in El Salvador. So the idea that we can somehow negotiate with him, that he's somehow, you know, the guy we're going to, like, come to some agreement with about, about migration is, in my mind, quite absurd. And again, I'm speaking with Joe Marie Burt, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Public Policy and of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state societies, relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America, a research consultant for the Open Society Justice Initiative. She writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for International Justice Monitor and is an author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence, and the Authoritarian State in Peru. So everything you've told us, Joe Marie, just makes me think that Vice President Harris has got an impossible task. And, you know, $4 billion and is supposed to be sent down there over a four-year period to make life more livable in these countries. But if they're run by these crooks, you can't funnel the money through them, can you? Because it'll all disappear. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I, I don't imagine Biden is setting her up to fail, but he's sure as hell giving her a difficult task. Right. And I mean, I think what's interesting is that Biden is the one, he was the point person under the Obama administration on Central America. So he knows the region very well. Uh, uh, the difference is when he was vice president, um, the CC was active in Guatemala there was maybe an imperfect, but there still was a functioning democracy in El Salvador. Honduras is a little bit of an outlier there. I think since the coup in 2009, we've had um, nothing but bad news from Honduras. You know, mass killings of um, human rights defenders, community leaders, indigenous leaders, um, you know, really zero uh, uh, independence of, you know, separate or separation of powers no checks and balances and rampant, just rampant corruption, a small anti-corruption initiative that was set up there through the Organization of American States ultimately collapsed because the government was just not allowing it to do its work. So Honduras is, you know, a, a very, um, a, a, I don't want to say a lost cause. I don't really think countries are lost causes, but it is not very good in Honduras. Um, that said, I think if anyone can tackle this, it's Kamala Harris. I mean, she's a star. She was a star prosecutor. She knows how to go after crime and corruption, right? So I think if she's put at a table with the right people in these meetings, right, the independent prosecutors in places like Guatemala who have combated corruption, who have combated impunity, who brought down presidents, generals, you know, economic elites, 
she will get a better understanding of what um, what she faces in places like Guatemala. Um, but she needs to hear those voices. If she's only sitting down with Yamate, uh, it's not going to get her very far. Um, and we are hope. I mean, she met uh, a week or so ago with um, two former attorneys general, both women. The former ma- the magistrate who was not allowed to take her position in the constitutional court, a woman, and a, fo- a former judge who uh, who basically had to leave Guatemala because she denounced corruption. She was uh, a, a, there was an attempted bribery sc- scheme organized by a broker of the vice president at the time. All four women met with Vice President Kamala Harris about a week ago and expressed to her some of the things that I'm talking to you about. So I know she's gotten a taste of it. I just hope that, um, again, I think there's this constraint whereby if if your main focus is migration, even if you're talking about root causes, then you're not really seeing the bigger picture. Because the bigger picture is these countries are devastated. These countries went through, you know, especially El Salvador and Guatemala, went through years of internal armed conflicts, massive violations of human rights committed by the army and paramilitary organizations against their own people with U.S. support, with U.S. funds, with U.S. training. And then when we, I mean, we did help negotiate peace. And there were transitions to democracy. But then we sort of packed up our bags and went away. Um, There was no Marshall Plan to help rebuild Central America, which we had contributed to destroying. And so they sort of, the democracies there have been sort of floundering. And then you add to that mix the gang problem, which is also a product of the United States. We sent people back um, to Central America who most of them had been born in the United States, raised in the United States, sent them back, generated a whole gang problem. So there's gang violence, there's common crime, there's um, this legacy of corruption, of military impunity, um, and it's been stewing. Um, the CC over the past 10 years was a huge positive experiment in trying to help Guatemala's fledgling democracy stand on its own two feet, helping strengthen the capacity of the attorney general's office of the judicial system to be able to combat exactly these ills. Crime. That was, of course, the UN commission commission. uh, to to clean up corruption. Correct. And um, what happened? Donald Trump was elected foreign policy no longer was about fighting corruption. It was no longer about building a rule of law in places like Guatemala. It was about what it could get for him. You've been listening to Background Briefing, and you want to stay tuned for NPR News, and then Janelle is in for Midpoint.